For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Daniel chapter 1, which I entitled Subverting the System. This becomes clear as we read through the narrative. But it might be worthwhile for us to do a little introduction to the book. Um, Typically, we like to talk about who the author is, the purpose of the book. Um, According to the book of Daniel, Daniel wrote the book. He identifies himself in uh, Daniel chapter 9 and 10. And interestingly, Jesus, uh, hundreds of years later, affirmed that Daniel actually wrote the book of Daniel in Matthew 24, verse 15, where he makes reference to the prophet Daniel and quotes from the book of Daniel. Um, Secondly, the setting of this was a time of turmoil in Israel. Um, Israel was on its decline in terms of power. And uh, we know that at this time there were two warring parties, one in Babylon, which was a growing power, and then you had Egypt to the south. And it turns out that Israel was actually caught right in the middle of this. And so uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king at the time in Babylon, ended up uh, actually destroying Egypt's forces and as a result took power over Israel. And what would happen is Nebuchadnezzar would make periodic trips to Israel and one of those trips would change the author's life, Daniel, as we'll see. The purpose? Well, there are a number of reasons why I think God included this book in the Old Testament. I think one thing that we notice as we read through the book of Daniel is the mighty power power of prayer. Try to say that three times fast. The mighty power of prayer. And it's unique because really when you look at the Old Testament narrative, there aren't very many cases where the, the... characters actually break out into prayer. But several times throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel and his friends pray to God in times of distress and suffering. And so we gain a pattern of how we should turn to God as we read through the book of Daniel. Secondly, God intended to restore God's splendor by including this book. You know, in the ancient world, whenever one nation defeated the other, it indicated that the dominant nation's um, gods actually were superior to those who were dominated or who had been conquered. So, in the minds of ancient people, the God of the Bible had been relegated to this second status compared to the gods of Babylon, Nebu and Aku. And so, Daniel in a way, wrote this book to elevate God's status back to where it belonged. Third, God provided hope through predictive prophecy. One of the things you're going to notice as we study through this, God gives us important insight into the future. Not only Daniel's future and Israel's future, but also the future events of human history to show that he, in fact, is sovereign, that he's in control of human history, that he hadn't lost control, as probably many Israelites had believed when 
They were brought into captivity in Babylon. As far as the date, Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 actually gives us a chronological marker to help us date the book of Daniel. Daniel 1 verse 1. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So, we're told that in the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah. Now, we have a pretty good idea of when this probably took place. Um, But we actually have some corroboration from history. In 605 B.C., we know that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon at the time, actually defeated Pharaoh Necho at the Battle of Carchemish, which we can accurately date to 605 B.C. So it must have been during this event that uh, we're told that Babylon besieged Jerusalem. And so this gives us sort of a, a solid footing in terms of how to date the book of Daniel. Daniel probably didn't write this the moment he arrived in Babylon, but at least maybe a few decades after. Now, it's interesting because many skeptics and critics of the Bible argue that Daniel was actually written at a much later time, around 200 B.C. or around 150 B.C. And they argue that the authors who wrote the book of Daniel wrote under Daniel's name in order to encourage the people of Israel as they were fighting what's called the Maccabean Revolt. So they dismissed this idea that there was an author living in the 7th century or the 6th century uh, who wrote this book, in large part because there are a number of predictive texts in the book of Daniel which seem to accurately tell us about future events. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time establishing an early date for the book of Daniel. It's very complicated. But if you're interested in learning more about this, we actually printed off a few copies of a really excellent article from Gleason Archer's An Introduction to the Old Testament. So if you're curious and you want that information, we have that available at the counter after the teaching. So... um, I'll leave you to read that, and, you know, we can discuss that via email if um, you have any further questions. Okay, verse 2. The Lord gave Nebuchadnezzar victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. It's interesting that Daniel doesn't include the whirlwind of political events surrounding this incident. He just gets right to the point. And really, Daniel wanted to communicate more than just what happened in this event in history. He wanted to communicate why it happened. He knew that God was in control of human history. And so he wasn't concerned about two ancient superpowers fighting it out. Instead, he was concerned about what God was doing in this event. We're told in verse 2 here that the Lord gave him victory and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects. So he specifies that God didn't cause Nebuchadnezzar to attack Jerusalem, but he didn't stop it either. 
And really, this kind of explains the way that God operates in human history. That he doesn't cause suffering and evil to enter the world, but he permits it because he knows he can take even the worst tragedy and and turn it into triumph. And that's exactly what he does here in the book of Daniel, as we'll see. Also, we're told that he took some of the sacred objects from the temple of God and then placed them into the treasure house of his God. Apparently, they had this elaborate museum in Babylon where they showcased the different treasures that they would uh, get from plundered cities. And they would take these sacred objects and put them out on display. More on that later. Verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. So apparently what happened was when Nebuchadnezzar came in and stormed Jerusalem, there were three waves where he took captives from Israel and deported them back into Babylon. And in this case, Daniel, along with some other royal families and noble families of Judah, were brought back into captivity. Um, Now, you know, you can imagine the wonder and splendor that confronted these guys as soon as they walked through the city gates. Um, Babylon was this amazing city. It was really the greatest city in the ancient world at this time. And so it must have been just jaw-dropping as Daniel and his companions walked through the city gates and saw Babylon for the very first time. Um, It was, at the time, one of the largest cities in the world, 2,500 acres. And also, this impressive city gate that they entered through must have just uh, caused Daniel's jaw to drop to the ground It was 50 feet high and 100 feet wide. And they actually recreated uh, one of these at the British Museum. Um, In addition to that, we know that they built this incredible ziggurat, which is sort of like a step temple. And this um, was about 300 feet high. And so it dominated the, the, the... skyscraper or the, the, the landscape of Babylon as they entered through. Not to mention, we know that Nebuchadnezzar actually created an incredible palace that had an outdoor garden on the, on the rooftop that became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So this was a spectacular city. And it must have been really, I, I guess, jarring for Daniel you know, coming from a, a smaller city like Jerusalem to enter into this, uh, this uh, city that had so much splendor. Well, you know, aside from its impressive architecture, Babylon was the center of learning in the ancient world. You know, really, they were walking into the belly of the world system. This place uh, led the way in terms of science, mathematics, art, We know that they um, were innovators in astronomy. And so, uh, not only was this an incredible city, it was also really the center of learning in the ancient world. Now, you know, imagine 
how Daniel and those guys must have felt. You know, they came from a pretty small city of about, I don't know, 30 to 60,000 people. You know, that's, prob- that's probably the size of like Mansfield, Ohio. And so can you imagine, you know, growing up in Mansfield, Ohio, you've never seen anything outside of Mansfield, Ohio, and then for the very first time, driving across the Brooklyn Bridge and seeing the skyscrapers lining uh, New York City. I mean, it, just, it, it would probably be very shocking. And that's exactly how Daniel and his companions felt, probably. Also, the widespread idol worship must have stunned Daniel and his friends. The city was dripping in pagan worship. And pagan temples littered the entire city. And so these guys were coming from a strictly monotheistic city and culture. They had never encountered anything like this. And in a moment's time, they were thrown into this, you know, uh, pluralistic culture where there were a variety of different gods that you could choose from and where your god would be relegated to the status of just one among many other gods in the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, this must have been really hard for Daniel. Can you imagine what it must have been like for him? Um, You know, he must have suffered a lot when Nebuchadnezzar captured his city, probably watched some of his family members and his friends killed at the hands of Babylonian soldiers. And then he had to take this long journey to Babylon. I actually uh, googled the distance between Jerusalem and where Babylon is, is near. Uh, it's actually close to where uh, Baghdad, Iraq is. And it says that it's 660 miles, which if you click the walk feature on Google Maps, it says it'll take you 224 hours to get there. And so Daniel embarked on this probably nearly 10-day journey as he is contemplating the events he just saw and getting thrown into this unknown situation. You know, after seeing your friends slaughtered, after seeing this great city that you had lived in overtaken by this foreign invading army, it would be easy to ask questions like, how could God let this happen? Aren't we, after all, his promised people? Didn't he say that he was going to protect us? And yet here we are, captured and deported. Well, as soon as they arrived there in Babylon, we're told that they took the young men and put them into this program. Nebuchadnezzar says, select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. So they recruited the best and brightest and most handsome guys out of all of these people that they captured from Judah, and they put them into this rigorous program. Babylon had a capture and release program where they essentially took in the, the elite from different nations that they would conquer. And what they would do is they'd put them under this training regimen 
where they would teach them Babylonian culture, and really it was a way of indoctrinating them. And eventually, once they had brainwashed these people, they could send them back into their land where they could rule. They understood the culture, they knew the language, but they had Babylonian values. And that's exactly what they wanted to do to Daniel and his companions. Verse 5, the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. So they were actually eating from the king's table. The best food that, that money could buy, prepared by the best chefs in the ancient world. Well, in verse 6 and 7, we're told Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah were four of the young men chosen. I'm sure there were more, but these were the ones that sort of uh, were highlighted. They were all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel was called Belshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, and Mishael was called Meshach. Azariah was also called Abednego. Okay. Um, now, this actually carries quite a bit of significance because as we mentioned in the book of Genesis, whenever a, uh, you know, a king or an authority figure renamed someone, that indicated that that person or that nation was really bowing the knee in subjection to those in authority. So this was really Nebuchadnezzar's way of erasing their identity, trying to take away and strip uh, their national identity and to put them under the control of Babylon. Unlike today, their names actually contain quite a bit of significance. For example, Daniel means God is our judge, and they renamed him Belshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life one of the Babylonian gods. Hananiah means the Lord shows grace. And they renamed him Shadrach, which means command of Aku, another one of the Babylonian deities. Azariah means the Lord helps. And they called him Abednego, which means servant of Nabu. Now, they are hardest on Mishael, whose Hebrew name actually sounds very similar to, similar to his uh, Babylonian name, Meshach, because Mishael means who is God like, and Meshach means who is Aku like. So they just effectively replaced God's name with this Babylonian deity's name. So let's take a step back and try to think about Daniel's situation here. You know, first of all, the Babylonians ripped him away from his home, his family, his friends, from his life and deported him to a hostile foreign land. I mean, this must have been a traumatic event in Daniel's life, being completely uprooted. And, you know, he was a young man at this time, probably about 16 years old, ripped away probably from his family if they actually made it into Babylon, probably watched some of his friends and family die at the sword, and then he enters into this great nation where he has an opportunity to compromise his faith in God, where there is active pressure for him to conform to the Babylonian way of life. 
you know, Nebuchadnezzar tried to brainwash him with Babylonian values, customs, religion, and a way of life. Uh, look at verse 2. It says that they took some of the sacred objects from the temple and placed them in the treasure house of his God. You know, you can imagine that Daniel and his companions probably had some access to the temple and different areas of Babylon. I'm sure that they probably entered into this museum-like area and probably looked at the sacred objects from their homeland, from the temple, pondering what they meant. You know, by placing these sacred objects with other sacred objects from cultures that they conquered, it really lowered their importance. In a way, it was uh, Babylon's way of demoting God to a status that was like other gods. That's really what it represented. You know, Nebuchadnezzar didn't really care about the religious value of these objects. Um, he probably didn't care about them. He just wanted to showcase his, his domination over other nations. And, you know, you wonder if they relegated the Hebrew religion among other religions that they had encountered. And uh, you wonder, too, if uh, it was probably sort of taboo to talk about the Hebrew religion as the one true religion. Just like in our culture today, people feel like it's dangerous to call a religion the one true religion. You know, if you start talking about how the Bible is true or God has spoken exclusively through the Bible, most people will start to say, you know, that's just really narrow-minded of you to say that. You know, for you to say that what God says in the Bible is the right way, that's sort of intolerant because, you know, the God of the Bible doesn't accept all of the different lifestyles represented in our country. And so it's intolerant. In fact, some uh, really outspoken atheists actually believe that our society would look a lot better if we just simply eliminated religion altogether. Richard Dawkins, uh, sometimes called the high priest of atheism, in his book, The God Delusion, says, Imagine with John Lennon a world without religion. Imagine no suicide bombers, no 9-11, no crusades, no witch hunts, no persecution of Jews as Christ killers, no Northern Ireland troubles, no, no honor killings, no shiny suit, big hairdo televangelists swindling gullible people of their money. Imagine no Taliban to blow up ancient statues, no public beheadings of blasphemers, no flogging of female skin for the crime of showing an inch of it. Imagine that. You know, really, he's expressing what I think a small um, and really growing minority of people in our culture believe that religion is really what's responsible for all the intolerance, all of the violence that we see in our society, in our world. And that really the best thing we could do is to expunge our culture of religion. And yet, we've seen that happen. You know, in the 70s and in the 50s, you know, when Pol Pot and Stalin were ruling in these communist countries, we saw what atheism does, claiming the lives of more than 50 million people. 
We don't have to guess or imagine with Richard Dawkins what that would look like. We know firsthand what would happen. Because the moment that you take God out of the equation, you also lose the value of human life. If we're nothing more than matter, if we're nothing more than a bag of, you know, uh, biological materials sloshing around, then what does it matter if we take a human life? Especially if it benefits the greater good. You know, uh, also, he says, train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Um, you know, they were subjected to not only learning Babylonian culture, learning the language, but also learning the religion of Babylon as well. And so they were actively trying to get Daniel and his companions to believe in this kind of syncretism where you could believe in the Hebrew God. That's fine. But you have to believe in him in addition to these others. Because after all, all religions are equally valid. Just like something people would say today. And so, um, Daniel was subjected to this, where they were actively trying to get him to reject his faith in God. You know, unlike the God of the Bible, the Babylonian gods didn't exist outside of nature. They were actually subject to it. According to Babylonian teaching, matter actually pre-existed the gods of Babylon. And so, just like today, you know, you see, scientists and philosophers seek to give a naturalistic explanation for everything in the universe. They say, you know, this idea that God created the things that we see, people believe that because they had no better explanation. They didn't understand science like we do today. And so they had to come up with a theory that filled in the gap in their knowledge. But I think that there's a fallacy in that thinking. To believe that a science, you know, some sort of physical law or some sort of, uh, you know, scientific law can actually bring about something is a little bit naive. You know, the law of physics, uh, none of those brought about anything. You know, think about the, the law of arithmetic, right? One plus one. Has that ever created something? It sure as hell hasn't put any money in my bank account. And I'm sure if I was waiting for it to actually create something and uh, fill up my bank account, I'd probably be pretty broke right now. And so uh, to think that, you know, a scientific law can actually create something seems a little bit naive. Um, also, Nebuchadnezzar tried to entice Daniel with the promise of riches, success, power, and pleasure. You know, all they needed to do was conform. And they could have incredible influence. They could actually, uh, you know, get to the top ranks of Babylonian society. All they needed to do was compromise. That's because the Babylonians offered them two options, the carrot or the stick. We'll offer you, you know, the prominent positions in the empire of Babylon, but you basically have to conform. You have to believe what we tell you. You have to 
embrace the values that we have and really get rid of your values in favor of ours. But if you don't, then you're going to die. And that's exactly what we'll see in the book of Daniel. Not unlike today, you know, you see often how in our culture today, whether it's our parents, whether it's our boss, whether it's our advisor, telling us that the most important thing that you could give yourself to is to becoming successful, building a great career. And, you know, once you do that, you can have lots of money and you can actually be really happy because people are going to admire you for your accomplishments and the really nice things that you have. But the moment that you decide, you know, I'm not going to live for that, but I'm going to live for God instead, then you start to face a lot of ridicule, a lot of pressure to change. You know, our family and our friends start to say things like, why are you devoting yourself to this God thing? You're wasting your, your life. You're wasting your potential, throwing it away. For what? This God thing? Give me a break. You can do the God thing, but just do it in addition to these other things that you should really focus on. In fact, you know, I've, I've had cases where family members have said, I'm going to actually cut you off. I'm not going to pay for your school unless you decide to just put this God thing aside. And so they are under tremendous pressure to conform. You know, another temptation that we often face in our culture today is, um, you know, living for pleasure. You, know, you, you walk down on campus on the weekend, you know, people are out partying. Um, they're living for sexual experience on the weekend. And, you know, once people find out, like, hey, you want to come and, and do these things with me, and you're like, eh, I don't know if I want to go and do that. They're just like, oh, you're super lame. What are you doing? Kidding me? You know, and, and we oftentimes feel embarrassed that we're not joining in. And sometimes we feel that pressure, like, well, you know, I'll just do it this one time. It's not going to really matter that much. Just this one time. And so... Just like Daniel and his companions, you know, we often face the pressure to conform to our culture. Our culture wants to drive certain values, a certain way of living that actually happens to be incompatible with what God says. And if we decide that we're going to take a stand for God, it might cost us. Well, in verse 8, Daniel was determined, though, not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to him by the king. So some commentators or, or students of the Bible actually think that the reason why Daniel refused to, to eat any of the king's food was because he was concerned about ceremonial uncleanliness. I don't think that's exactly what was happening. I think that unlike our world today, the church and state, religion and state, were intertwined in Babylon. So often... At the beginning of these meals, they would offer a toast or offer a blessing upon the food to the Babylonian gods. And so Daniel refused to participate in this. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat any of these unacceptable foods. And God had given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. So Daniel apparently was, uh, he had won over the chief of staff. And so he politely asked him, he said, 
is it possible that I eat something different than the, the food that comes off of the king's table? You know, it's interesting that Daniel didn't protest as someone outside the system, but he actually protested as a participant. He didn't stand up and say, there's no way in hell I'm eating this. You could, you could take that Babylonian food and shove it. He didn't say that. Uh, he looked for an alternative. He, he looked to try to subvert the system from within the system, not standing outside as a judge of the system. But he responded, he says, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youth your age, I'm afraid that the king will have to kill me. So he's like, look, I would do this, but I'm afraid because I'm responsible for you guys and your training. Daniel spoke with the attendant who had been appointed by the chief of staff to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. And so he said, look, just, just try it out. No wine, no meat, just vegetables. And interestingly, that word uh, vegetable is the Hebrew word to'of, where we get tofu from. I'm just kidding. I mean, that's... <laughs> totally made that up. Well, at the end of the 10 days, see how they look in comparison to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then we'll make our decision of light, in light of what you see. He's like, just give it a chance and see whether this actually works. And the attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and, ten, and tested him for 10 days. So, <clears throat> How did Daniel manage to cling to his faith, right? That's really the central question we are asking here. I think first, he must have worked through some of the tough questions believers face, such as, why do God's followers suffer? Because if you don't answer that question before suffering enters into your life, your faith won't have any legs to stand on. You have to answer that question in advance, And I'm certain that Daniel, as he was working through this on his long journey to Babylon, came to the right conclusion. You know, Daniel probably fled to the Bible for answers and hope. We know that one of Daniel's contemporaries, Jeremiah, wrote his book several decades earlier and that Daniel actually had access to this book. Jeremiah clearly states the reason why they were in Babylon. Jeremiah 29, verse 10 through 14. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I promised. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you, and I will bring you home again to your land. So Daniel probably knew that this is exactly what was happening, that God was actually disciplining the nation of Israel for its idol worship and its mistreatment of its poor, and that as a result, they were going to be in captivity for a certain period of time, but that at the end of that time, God would restore them again. And so he looked forward to this future hope. Third, he saw that God had a plan and purpose for his life. He knew that God loved him, knew that God was personal, and understood, as Paul did, that God actually knows who you are, and has actually a plan for the kind of good things you can do for him. He states that very clearly in Ephesians 2.10 where he says that God has created you 
as a masterpiece. And that he's worked out good things for you to do in advance. You know, God says that your life matters. That it contains purpose. And that that purpose actually gets unleashed the moment we come to Christ. You know, some of you here tonight feel aimless. You're not sure what your life actually means. What purpose it contains. God wants you to know that your life has purpose. And the purpose of your life, first of all, is to actually enter into a relationship with God. You know, if you're here tonight, you might be feeling empty. God wants to make you whole. And the only way that that's going to happen is not by him pouring on blessing into your life, but it's by forging a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. And so if you're here tonight, I'd urge you to consider turning to God and inviting him to come into your life. And once you do that, God will actually open up the potential for you to really make a difference in this world. One person at a time as we invest in people. You know, another thing is that Daniel refused to conform. You know, in our culture today, nonconformity is a little bit lame. Let's just be honest. You know, it's about listening to underground music that nobody listens to. You know, it's about dressing a certain way, expressing yourself. Um, back when I was in uh, high school, it was, uh, you know, the goth kids. Remember them? You know, when you think about Daniel's stand, it's, it's interesting because, you know, he um, decided that he was going to work within the system. You know, he learned Babylonian culture. He learned its literature, learned the language. And uh, as we'll find out, he actually rose to the highest ranks of Babylonian society. And so Daniel took his stand. Um, but he didn't do it in a way that essentially put him in opposition to his captors. You know, really what he was doing was rebelling against the rebellion. Interestingly, um, during the Civil War, um, Tennessee was actually divided. Western Tennessee sided with the Confederacy, and Eastern Tennessee sided with the Union because it was largely mountainous, and so they didn't have as many slaves. And so in 1861, when Lincoln attacked and captured Fort Sumter, Tennessee um, became a part of the Confederacy. But Eastern Tennessee said that they didn't want to be a part of that and actually uh, tried to withdraw from Tennessee as, an, as a different state but Western Tennessee actually sent a Confederate army into Eastern Tennessee to occupy it. And so during the rest of the war, Eastern Tennessee went underground. And they actually started to uh, tear down bridges. They gave valuable intel to the Union about the Confederate army. And they actually were supporting Union soldiers until finally they were liberated. And so in the same way, you know, when you look at Daniel, um, he rebelled against the rebellion and he worked within the system. Likewise, you know, God calls on us to remain a part of this world, but not to conform to this world, to be different in our values. But, that, you know, we shouldn't stick out like a sore thumb that causes people in our culture to look at us and to just, you know, scoff at how ridiculous we are. 
but that we're to blend in, but look different in the way that we, we live our lives. Uh, interestingly, um, the South actually staked its rebellion on illegitimate grounds. After the Civil War concluded, the Supreme Court actually ruled that the Confederacy was acting on illegitimate grounds. And in the same way, when you look at our culture, you know, it claims that God's legitimacy to rule here on earth is invalid. And yet we know that God has a right to rule because he's created the world that we live in. You know, and so just like eastern Tennessee where they're outmanned, they have to go underground, they're under pressure to change and conform, you know, we are really in a very similar uh, situation where we're outnumbered, our, our culture wants us to conform, but we know that one day God's going to win and that he's going to establish his kingdom once and for all. So how do we maintain our faith in a hostile culture? There are a number of things. We could run and hide. We could, we could create our own culture uh, and not participate in, in the culture we live in. You know, the most extreme version of this, obviously, would be the Amish. Um, but, you know, you got to think, if people don't even notice that we're a Christian, if there's nothing really to identify us in the way that we act as believers in Christ— Maybe we've gone underground because we're afraid. Or we can also stand in open defiance and declare war on our culture. You know, you see a lot of Christians do this where they have essentially become anti-cultural. I saw this video that I thought was kind of interesting. Look at your M closely. There's a gap right here in the letter M. It's never connected. So you go into Hebrew... The letter Vav is also the number six. Short top, long tail. Short top, long tail. You could have here in Hebrew 666 on the can. But my interest is the word monster. What do you see in the O? There's a cross. Okay. What has Christ got to do with an energy drink, let alone the name monster? So I thought, well, maybe this is a Christian company then. BFC at the bottom of the can. Do you know what that stands for? That's the F word. Big can. In fact, they write it on the side of the can. So I know that's the F word. Okay. Now, do you know what a MILF is? Yes. That's on the box. MILFs, dig it, and you will too. This is not a Christian company at all. So why would they have put a cross on the can? Here is the message. Antichrist. 666 in Hebrew. And look at it this way. Even if the M was not the issue, you cannot... All right, you get the idea. It's just, it's just too hard to watch. You know, that's one option. And, and uh, you know, I think a lot of people in our culture identify Christians with these people who are anti-cultural. I don't think that that's the stance we should take either. I think there's maybe a third option where we blend in with our culture, but we win people over to our cause. Um, you know, in the superficial ways, you know, we look just like our culture in the sense that we dress like our culture, we listen to the same music, we watch the same movies. But in terms of our values, we're different. We look different. 
You know, we, we're not about living for money. We're not about living for comfort. We're not about living for pleasure like the rest of our culture. Though we enjoy those things, we don't center our lives around them. And people take notice when they see that we're not investing our entire life into some of these things. You know, <clears throat> another thing is that we can let our lives silence people's foolish accusations. You know, there's a lot of accusations about our church and what we're doing out on campus. And, you know, I think it's important for us to be friendly, to show love, to be hardworking, to be good students, so that, you know, when people encounter us, that's the impression that they get about our church. And, you know, I've actually heard of cases where people have actually defended us, people who are not Christians and who have no affiliation with our church who are like, you know, those I don't know what you're talking about, but, you know, those people that I've met at Xenos are really cool. What you're saying doesn't really square with what, I'm ta- what I've seen. Well, the conclusion of the story is this. At the end of the ten days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided by the others. God gave these four young men unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom, and God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. So they entered the royal service. They actually climbed into the top ranks of Babylon. Finally, whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the other magicians, enchanters in his entire kingdom, the wise men of Babylon. So, really, when you look at it, Daniel took a huge risk, and God still elevated him to the pinnacle of Babylonian society. Now, this is not really a promise that if you devote yourself to God, that God's going to make you prominent and wealthy. That's not the point. The point is that if you seek first his kingdom, the rest will be added on to you, as Jesus says. That if you put first things first, following God is your priority, that he's going to provide for you. And even if you do suffer loss because, you know, people are calling on you to conform, whether that's your advisor, your friends, your family, your boss, God will take care of you. And finally, Daniel started a revolution that eventually turned the Babylonian Empire upside down. But it started with small acts of defiance, just like this. You know, we see the same thing in Daniel chapter 3, where they are put into this fiery furnace and emerge unscathed. And we see the same thing um, in in, uh, the story of Daniel and the lion's den, as we'll see as well. It's interesting that in Daniel chapter 4, as we'll see, that it's possible, maybe even likely, that King Nebuchadnezzar, as a result of Daniel and his companions' influence, actually came to know God. Yeah, thanks for the example of Daniel, Lord, somebody who uh, withstood uh, the test of conforming to his culture. And uh, we face constant uh, temptation to uh, succumb to what our culture says is important 
And uh, I pray that uh, you would help us to evaluate in advance, um, you know, whether it's worth living for you and to, uh, whether we should put you at the center of our lives because we know that uh, once we face those temptations, if we haven't made that decision, if we haven't committed ourselves to you, that uh, we will falter. And I pray for those of us, Lord, who uh, maybe are investigating you. Pray that uh, as we take this journey through the book of Daniel, that it will um, inspire faith. That, uh, you know, they would, people here would be able to see evidence for your reality. And that as a result, they can put their personal trust in you. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.